Hey, Betfolio Voice friends, Dr. Cassie here for another great episode sponsored by Hills and featuring Dr. Sarah Ramos here to talk about the role of dietary support for dogs with allergic skin disease. I recently touched on this topic in another episode where we briefly talked about options for dietary therapy that extend beyond novel protein and hydrolyzed options to help support patients with allergic skin disease. And in this podcast, Dr. Ramos and I really dive into how these dietary options work and how they can support our patients even from a very young age. The whole conversation was very eye-opening and I really walked away feeling encouraged that there were additional options available for these patients. We also talk about supplements and what vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients are important in managing allergic skin disease and how to talk to clients about supplements. We know these cases can be incredibly chronic, incredibly frustrating, and sometimes we end up with clients who are so desperate to help their pet feel better, understandably so, that they're giving 15 different supplements that their cousin's brother's friend recommended in hopes that they'll help. So that was a really helpful part of the conversation with Dr. Ramos to talk about what types of nutrients really are important in these patients and how to communicate with clients about those in a helpful and constructive way that can really benefit their pet. A little about our speaker, Dr. Sarah Ramos grew up in Louisiana and graduated in 2015 from the Louisiana State University School of Veterinary Medicine. Following graduation, she completed a one-year rotating internship at the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine, which is where she was inspired to pursue a career in dermatology. She then returned to LSU, where she completed both a one-year dermatology internship and a three-year dermatology residency. Dr. Ramos became a board-certified dermatologist in 2020 and now serves the dermatology needs of pets in the New Orleans and Baton Rouge area, working at Veterinary Specialists of Greater New Orleans and Capital Area Veterinary Specialists. Dr. Ramos is passionate about continuing to learn and teaching others within the field of dermatology, and I thought she was just a great teacher, so fun to talk to. Let's jump into this episode. For this episode, I am joined by Dr. Sarah Ramos, and we're going to talk about allergic skin disease and specifically dietary therapy when it comes to allergic skin disease. So Dr. Ramos, thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for uh, everything we've got on the docket for today and can't wait to jump in. Yes, same. I have so many questions about dietary therapy and allergic skin disease because this can be really tough. So let's kind of start sort of basic here and talk about what are the options for dietary therapy in these pets? Yeah. And I love this topic because I think it's something that our owners are super tuned into and there are tons of options. So Going down to like the base level, mainly we're going to be talking about novel protein diets, hydrolyzed diets, or skin support diets, uh, namely our Derm Complete Diet by Hills as a focus on today's uh, nutritional therapy. Wonderful. So these skin support diets, this was actually, I, I know these have been around for a little while, but kind of the light bulb just came on for me recently as far as what these diets are there for and what they do. Can you elaborate on what you mean by skin support diets? Yeah, absolutely. So these are diets 
And once again, we're specifically going to focus in on Derm Complete, but one of the reasons I love this diet is because it is formulated with all of the supplements that our owners are always just begging to give their pets. They're they're buying them at the, the store and they've got this in them and they've got that in them. And so Derm Complete or other skin support diets, but specifically Derm Complete are really, really nice because it is formulated to be safe for food allergic patients. It's got a single uh, protein source, which going to be an egg protein source, but it's also formulated with a lot of those supplements that the owners want to give like fatty acids, things like that in them. And so you can kind of use it as a middle ground diet. If you have a patient who you think is atopic, but you're unsure if they have a food component, it's been hard to do a diet trial in them. You can kind of use this category of diets with a little bit of confidence to say, well, I'm going to support for both food allergy and I'm going to be supporting the atopic patient with environmental allergies. Interesting. And can we dive into that a little bit? Because I understand some of the nomenclature around atopic dermatitis has changed recently. And so can you just real quick remind us as far as like environmental versus food um, and how that plays into the definition of an atopic patient? Absolutely. So typically true atopic dermatitis is going to be a case where you rule out food allergy first. So you've done a diet trial, you've eliminated food as a possibility, and we're left with what I call a pure atopic, which means that we think we have an environmentally induced case. There is definitely a lot of confusion around the literature because you will see some people who use the term food-induced atopic dermatitis. So they kind of categorize it all together and say, well, we think we have a food allergy, but we're still putting them with the atopic label. Typically, when I'm talking about it to make it less confusing, I say food allergy or I say atopic dermatitis. And when referencing atopic dermatitis, in most of those cases, it's going to be mainly environmental patients to try to make it clearer for the owners because they also have confusion as well with the nomenclature. Yes. And I also have confusion as well. So thank you. I needed that clarification. Keep it separate. That's the easiest thing I can say. Perfect. Perfect. So you mentioned supplements and I will fully admit, like I'm a, I'm a big fan of using certain supplements in treating patients in particular skin patients. You know, you mentioned the omega-3 fatty acids. So can you tell us your experience with supplements? What kind of supplements do you find people are, you know, what are those that they're dying to give and how do you feel about them? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like most of our owners have come in, especially the new cases that I see and they are, they're they're just, they have a level of desperation, right? They're at the grocery store, they're at the pet store and I feel for them. I have compassion. I know having an allergic patient, it's honestly just terrible, right? We all feel that way where you've just got this constant itchy dog. They hear this ad on Instagram or see this product at the store and they want to buy it. A lot of them are when you look at the ingredients, because my owners will bring them in mainly fish oil based, but some have, you know, different things in them as far as vitamin E, vitamin A. There's like the turkey tail supplement when you go really, really homeopathic. Most of them are supposed to be geared at inflammation. But as far as recognizing like which ones I like, it's really hard because the supplement industry is so it's just massive. I mean, each week I feel like I have an owner with a different supplement. Some of them are repeat, but there's so many different options. It's, it's overwhelming for pet owners and even for us as veterinarians to know, okay, well, what's this company? Where are they based? Or, you know, what's their manufacturing process? There's no real regulation. Is this actually what is in the product? And so 
a lot of those times when I'm working with clients, I'll say, hey, I'm really not familiar with this product. I don't know this product. It's probably not going to hurt, but I don't know how much it's going to help because I can't really trust it. And what I tell owners as far as supplements go, I think there is tremendous support as far as evidence-based. It's not just my opinion, evidence for essential fatty acids. And we see that in human medicine as well. If you look at human medicine and the research that's been done with essential fatty acids, there's excellent evidence for cardiovascular disease, things like that. As far as our world, where we have smaller research studies, there's specifically two papers I know of that do support fatty acid supplementation. One, looking at uh, allergic patients and the use of steroids and fatty acids were able to create a steroid sparing effect. So decrease the amount of steroids that those patients had to take. That paper specifically is Savec et al. In, in 2004 for any listeners who want to go look it up. And then another paper, Mueller et al. in 2015, showed a very similar effect of cyclosporin sparing when we used fatty acids. So it was able to decrease the amount of cyclosporin that they were giving these allergic patients. So definitely good evidence for fatty acids. I am all in support of fatty acid supplementation. And when you look in the literature for other sorts of supplements, there's positive evidence for zinc. There's a paper on that. There's positive evidence for vitamin A and vitamin E. And, and we know that, right? When we take supplements ourselves, you know, vitamin A, we know is important for keratinization, uh, sim similar with vitamin E. We all like vitamin C, right? We know the immune system boost, which the, uh, the allergic patients can definitely benefit from. So all that to say, I do like supplements. I overall have a positive, I guess, relationship with my, my patients and clients when I'm talking about supplements, but it's just so hard because of the market and which ones to recommend. So for pure fish oils, I tend to stick with companies that I know. So I do like the Decra products. I carry those in house. I like Decra as a company. And then additionally, I think that's where the benefit of, of Derm Complete really comes in because that has all of those supplements in there. So I'm able to just say, hey, instead of giving all these different pills from companies that we may or may not trust, let's just do Derm Complete and have peace of mind that we're supplementing and getting all of those benefits from the essential fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin E, et cetera without having to, to risk, uh, not supplementing the pet, you know, or not giving them because we are giving so much for the allergic patient in general. I mean, that's gotta be a little bit of a relief for pet owner, pet owners, like, you know, turn off the Amazon auto ship and let's feed this diet. That's going to supply a lot of what we're looking for in a reliable form that, you know, that from a company we can trust. Absolutely. And it gives, it just, I think it's so much easier for them because sometimes they're, they're just so desperate. Like I said, I have a lot of compassion for our owners, but it just, it makes it easier. The pets usually really like it. And it gives you as the doctor peace of mind that we're doing everything we can on the supplementation end. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I know you mentioned a lot of these, but can you elaborate a little bit further on what it is that Durham Complete supplies that we're looking for in these supplements that owners may be giving. Yeah, absolutely. So Derm Complete has some key points when we look at the diet in general. So first starting out, looking at the protein, it's going to be a single intact protein egg, which has limited allergenicity. So that's gonna be benefiting those food allergy patients. Secondarily, looking at inhibiting that inflammatory response that we see in those atopic patients. And that's the biggest benefit we're going to get is that histogard complex or um, that's in derm complete and the omega-3 fatty acids as well. 
That histogard complex is specifically made up of the eggs, polyphenols, and antioxidants. These are things that are going to be found in fresh fruit and fresh vegetables that are going to reduce the allergic reaction and minimize inflammation all in all in the body. So second key point there. Third key point is that Germ Complete is going to work to restore the skin barrier with a focus on the omega-6s. We'll talk about this, I guess, a little bit later that the omega-6s sometimes get a bad rap, but they actually are really helpful for skin barrier restoration. So when we look at the skin barrier benefits for Germ Complete, we've got the omega-6s, we've got B vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin A, and vitamin E, as well as zinc, all within that diet. And then additionally, just benefits from Derm Complete on skin, coat, and health. And that's going to be all of those ingredients that we just listed, the omega-3s, the 6s, the vitamin A's, E, C, zinc, and uh, copper as well. Interesting. So we're really kind of knocking a lot of these supplements out of there and supplying most of what what our owners were giving through, you know, whatever they were finding at the store online or, um, you know, try, trying to give to get their pet to feel better. Yes, absolutely. And it, and I think the biggest thing is it's from a reputable source. You know, a lot of us work with Hills within our clinic and know and trust Hills. And if you've ever worked with Hills or been to um, their like small paws facility, they are so invested in research and really focusing on helping the pets individually, but also the pet parent. And so using reliable ingredients, ingredients we can trust. I know I always use this example, but a lot of the other supplements when you look at the ingredients, like the, the perfect example is those pill pockets that are peanut butter. The first ingredient in there is chicken. <laughs> when oh you look gosh. on, right? <laughs> so people are like, oh, it's fine. It's just peanut butter. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's actually not <laughs> the first ingredient's chicken. And they don't realize that. And so there's just a little bit of a mistrust between what we see on the front of the bag and what we see actually in the ingredients. And with the Hills products, you know, we have a little bit better peace of mind using a company that is very much for the veterinarian and for the pet parent and for the pet. Yes, absolutely. A little more transparency there. I'm thinking of some, like I've, I've definitely encountered with um, like some grocery store diets where it's like a lamb and rice diet and they're like, I got him off the chicken. And sure enough, like you pull it up and the first ingredient is chicken. You're like, how? <laughs> So close, but so, so far, close, but not quite. Oh, yeah. Um. So let's let's jump back to these omega threes here for a second, or you know, I, I say omega threes, but you mentioned omega sixes too, which is what I'm curious about. Um. I I recommend omega fatty acids in a lot of my derm patients, and I feel like I see good results, and they work really well. Can you remind me why that is? I don't actually. I have. I will. You know, bear my soul a little bit here. I don't actually remember the mechanism of action that we're looking at here. Yeah. Um, to be honest, it can be very confusing when you dive back in. So it's totally fair. And I feel like it takes us all back to like, I don't even remember if we learned it in first year or second year, one of those pharmacology classes. Yeah, I don't there's know. like arachidonic acid is in there somewhere and with the omega threes, but beyond that, I'm, I'm lost. Yes. The key point for clinical practice, which I think we all know fish oil is good for supplementation or the omegas are good for supplementation. So that's the key takeaway point, but diving back into that, absolutely. So we have our, our essential fatty acids, which are going to be the omega-3s and the omega-6s. And these are required for overall good health. We call them essential fatty acids because humans and other mammals are overall unable to synthesize them for the most part. There's this definition is not 100% true as some of the omega-6s, such as arachidonic acid, which you just mentioned, and DHA can technically be synthesized, but 
for the scope of this podcast, we're just going to call them all essential fatty acids and say that they're required through diet. The effects and interactions of these omega-3s and these omega-6s is going to lead to numerous effects on the signaling pathways and the metabolic pathways that affect inflammation, protein synthesis, cell growth. I mean, pretty much every organ in the body, CNS, whole body effect, which is kind of crazy when you think about it because we consider it a supplement, but it actually does so much within the body. Most of these essential fatty acids that we're taking in or that the dogs are taking in are going to be obtained from uh, fish, crustacean, vegetables. And as we kind of remember them, and I alluded to this earlier, that the omega-6s get kind of a bad reputation, we tend to summarize the omega-3 essential fatty acids as anti-inflammatory and good, and everybody likes those, and they get the smiley face, and the omega-6 essential fatty acids as bad because they are pro-inflammatory mainly because they lead to arachidonic acid formation. And when we look closer at that arachidonic acid cascade, once again, we can see the, the eicosanoids that are produced or the factors that are produced, a lot of them do lead to inflammation. There's a lot of other effects, but they are definitely still pro-inflammatory. When we're talking about arachidonic acid in the body, it's mostly going to be derived from linoleic acid, and that is found specifically in Derm Complete. I know we're going to talk about it for a second being bad, right, being pro-inflammatory, but I'll also circle back to why it's good. But if we take a minute and kind of go back to uh, like fifth grade, seventh grade, wherever we learned about those cardinal signs of inflammation, which is calor or warmth, uh, dolor or pain tumor, which is swelling, and rubor, which is redness, the eicosanoids, which are derived from the uh, essential fatty acids, are involved with each of these signs. And so that's where we can kind of simplify that down to being pro-inflammatory. Just as a quick example, if we look at like leukotriene before, this is a metabolite of arachidonic acid, so that omega-6 pathway its role in swelling, when we look at what it does, if it is expressed or there, it will make the blood vessels more permeable, allowing the plasma to leak out into the connective tissue, hence the swelling or the tumor that we get with those classic signs of inflammation. And then of course, when you have swelling, the body doesn't like that. So then we're going to get release of a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And so all of that to say these omega-6s are very much linked to inflammatory symptoms. I could give an example for each one of those, but don't want to completely bore you guys on the podcast going through all the, the different leukotrienes. So that was just a quick example. And why we like the omega-3s is that they're going to be the, the primary competing cascade. So they're going to compete for those enzymes um, to produce less inflammatory or less inflammation and kind of downregulate the omega-6 pathway. Our omega-3 fatty acids are going to mainly be derived from things like flax oil, walnuts, and in general, these eicosanoids derived from EPA or uh, eicosapentoic acid, that's the, one of the primary omega-3s, they're going to counteract the inflammatory effects of their arachidonic acid metabolites. And it's typically going to do it in like three ways, three main ways. So the way that it's going to inhibit or work against that is through displacement. So our dietary omega-3s are going to decrease tissue concentrations of arachidonic acid. So there's less to form the 
omega-6 eicosanoids like the leukotriene B4 that we just talked about. They're also going to work through competitive inhibition. So the omega-3s like EPA are going to compete with arachidonic acid for access to the two enzymes. You guys may remember these, the cyclooxygenase and lipooxygenase enzymes. And that's going to lower the, the presence of or output of the arachidonic acid metabolites or eicosanoids. And then through counteraction. So where the direct products or eicosanoids derived through the omega-3 pathway are going to counteract the uh, arachidonic acid metabolites. And that's going to, so to speak, be less inflammatory or um, kind of downregulate those inflammatory uh, molecules. Interesting. Okay. So the, the omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. The omega-6s are technically pro-inflammatory, but you're mentioning that Derm Complete has linoleic acid, which would be if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, our precursor for these omega-6s, why does, why would it contain something that's, that's going to lead to omega-6 synthesis if I'm interpreting that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And great question. And I kind of meant to circle back. So I'm glad you brought that back up. Yeah, no, that was a lot. That was a lot. I'm happy to jump in and, and take us back all, back all the way around. Yes. So the derm complete, when we look at what they have, they have a two, derm complete has a two to one ratio. So we are going to be higher in those omega threes, but we are still going to have a component of the omega sixes, namely linoleic acid. And we actually do want that there. So even though I just went through how most of the omega sixes are going to lead to pro inflammatory responses, when we look at the actual role of Omega six is within the skin barrier. So when we talked about uh, skin barrier restoration earlier for Derm Complete, that omega six is going to be key. So as far as structural components, linoleic acid is actually the most abundant fatty acid present within the epidermis, and it is selectively inserted into two lipid compounds within the sub Q and helps form that nice barrier that we want and we need. And we know that atopic patients actually have a bad barrier. So we really do want to be focused on barrier restoration. And that's where a dietary therapy or nutrition therapy is going to be great, but also topical therapy, which is why dermatologists are always talking about topical therapy, uh, focusing on barrier restoration. And so the presence of linoleic acid in these subcutaneous ceramides directly correlates with permeability barrier function of the skin. And there's actually a paper looking at that. Uh, it's a human paper, but it's by Hansen showing that we really need these omega-6. You can't just take them out. They are good for the skin barrier and health. And kind of tying back into topical therapy, there's even topical fatty acid supplementation. And that's partially why that it's there. It's helping to restore that skin barrier and kind of plug some of those defects that we see and we know are in the atopic patient. So we still need omega-6s. Um, but if I'm hearing you correctly, we want more omega-3s than omega-6s. And we're more concerned with the ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s rather than, well, we just want omega-3s and not any omega-6s. Correct. Yes. We don't want to just have, it's kind of like everything in moderation. You don't just want to, you know, say, hey, we're going to be all into the omega-3s. The omega-6s are still helpful, but we would just want them there in smaller amounts. And that's where it's nice because if you have an owner supplementing with a supplement that you're not familiar with, how do you know what they're giving? You know, and so this is just peace of mind for for you and for the owner that you're getting a, an accurate supplementation ratio, prioritizing those omega-3s, sorry, but not completely negating the omega-6s. 
when, when you said that, that everything in moderation, my head went to like, yes, like me, when I try to entirely remove carbs, I become a very angry person. So I still <laughs> need them there just in smaller amounts. Yes. It's healthy overall. Yeah. That's how we do the omega-6s. Perfect. Perfect. Omega-6s, carbohydrates. Now, now we're just getting out of control here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so with derm complete, I understand that there's a puppy formulation of this diet and an itchy puppy is always something that like, I get a little bit of a pit in my stomach. Cause I'm like, oh boy, you know, just the physiology is a little bit different. Our treatment options are a little bit different. And I'm always questioning, like, you know, am I going to, um, be able to manage this correctly? So can you walk us through itchy puppies and the role of dietary therapy with itchy puppies? Absolutely. And I, I get so excited. I love working with young dogs. Um, I don't get to see them very often as a dermatologist because most of the time they are going to be handled by the primary care doctors, you know, till it gets severe enough or isn't sorted out. But I honestly love that for, for you guys in general practice. I have some of my best friends are in general practice and I'm like, man, the things they deal with, they, they need those puppy appointments because <laughs> Gosh, they text me sometimes and I'm like, oh my goodness, how are y'all dealing with that? So lots of respect for you guys out there in general practice. But the itchy puppy, I would hope um, that you guys can have some resources to to help not have that pit in your stomach and that you can almost look forward to these appointments because thankfully puppies are a little bit of a clean slate when it comes to, you know, they're fresh, they're young, their skin doesn't have all these chronic changes. We can have a very proactive kind of out view on them. And as, as far as approaching them, I love the Derm Complete Puppy because we do know that dogs with food allergies up to 40% with them are going to start with signs at less than a year old. So it is within total bounds to see a young itchy puppy and it have food allergy. Also here in the South, lots of my patients start with atopic disease at a very young age. The classic age of onset is supposed to be one to three years, according to the literature, but I have seen way too many that start with disease at uh, before a year old, just because of the South and where I'm from. But when we approach that itchy puppy, We actually, and I just put together a protocol with Hills. If you guys um, have a local Hills representative, you can reach out to them. It's called Five Steps to Managing the Itchy Puppy. It can be a great resource for you guys to just look at if you're like, I don't know what to do with this case and can hopefully give you some direction. But the first step is going to be just to take that awesome derm exam and history and do both of those together, starting, of course, with our history. And for puppies, since they don't have this super long history, Really, you don't, you know, my questionnaire for patients that I see here is like 20 questions for puppies. They've, you know, only been alive a couple months. So you could probably narrow that down quite a bit. And there's some key questions we're going to ask of, are there any other pets in the house affected? Are there any people affected? Uh, When did it start? How has it transformed? And I guess when we talk about puppy, I usually categorize it as a dog less than 12 months old. So if you do have like an 11 month old dog, there could have, you know, some seasonal components. So you could definitely ask about that. But starting with that derm history is always going to be super helpful. And then from there, moving into that derm exam, when I do my derm exam, it is, you want to look at the dog nose to tail just all parts of the dog. And while you're doing this, you want to be highlighting areas that you want to consider sampling. So I'm looking for what areas are the most affected. And when I'm doing this, it's also going to be helping with my differential list. So I'm kind of taking it all in as a process, combining that with my history saying, okay, I've got the feet affected. I've got the ears affected. I've got 
a little bit of the belly affected. These are the areas I think I want to sample that I'm going to get approved for the owner moving on to our next step, which is typically our, our minimum database. And I see what you're saying as far as this derm exam goes. I think it's easy to look at these patients and, and say, okay, well, I have a red itchy dog um, who also has an ear infection, but to look at it instead of what parts are red and itchy, taking it back to, to dermatology and all the different types of lesions and what we're seeing in those areas, it's easier to see how that can start to form a picture of what you're dealing with rather than, I just have a red itchy dog who also has an ear infection to say feet and ears primarily. And that's going to, that's going to point in one direction versus, you know, axilla and inguinal pointing a different direction or tailhead. Oh gosh, tailhead in the South. <laughs> Yes. Those are the great cases though. Cause then you're yes. like, yes, I know <laughs> I what to do. <laughs> yes. And if, you know, autoimmune disease is very rare in the puppy, but they it can absolutely happen. I had a litter of bulldog puppies with uh, bullis disease and, you know, we had paw pads affected. And so, but the puppies were also bulldog uh, mixes. And so they did also have some allergies and some red bellies, but primarily their lesions was bullis disease on their, on their paw pad. So that's going to help you kind of rule in. That's not, obviously not very common, but that's significantly going to change your differentials when you see that you have significant paw bat disease in such a young dog. But as far as moving forward, I usually will use that exam for that minimum database. So that's going to be step two and saying, hey, Mrs. Jones, this is what we're seeing. These are the areas I think I want to sample and kind of alluding back to even if I don't see the tailhead region, I will always do a flea comb on new patients here in Louisiana. The swamp is is full of fleas. So we have to check every patient, even the patients we think are on flea meds sometimes still have fleas. Um, or it'll or say, the, that, doesn't it last for like six months or something? And you're like, no, that's, <laughs> let's revisit. I'm not sure what you're giving, but no. <laughs> yes. It's such a struggle. And sometimes we'll feel like we're good. We look in the record and we're like, okay, the primary care vet dispensed Sempericotrio last month. And so we're like, we're good. We're giving that, I'll put that on the discharge and then they'll come in for the recheck and they're like, oh no, 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 we haven't been giving that. And I'm like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. Yes, we'll go ahead and start that. They're like, we have the whole box. We just never gave it. Go ahead and start that. They're like, we were giving all the other things. I'm like, well, that is very important. We cannot not give that. So go ahead and start that. But um, all that to say, yes, checking for fleas. If you're up in the North, I get you guys may not have that, but I still recommend it just because I'm PTSD down here. And then, especially in a puppy, we always want to make sure to do our superficial and deep skin scrapes because we know they are immunocompromised. And so, you know, just checking to make sure that we don't have Demodex and it's becoming less and less, or scabies, uh, less and less common with the isoxazoline family, which is awesome. I mean, it, it's, you know, very easy to treat now. And then also dermatophyte testing. So I do like to screen all of my new patients with a wood slamp. Uh, that's my preferred test. The important thing to remember with dermatophytes is that there is no gold standard test for dermatophyte testing. Uh, Moriello et al. has a great review article. It's, I think it's like 40 pages on everything you could ever want dermatophyte. If you guys ever need a resource, it's all open access. It's ooh, it's tough to get through if you read it from front to cover, but it's very, very um, helpful if you have dermatophyte questions. So great resource for you guys. Wanted to mention that. But essentially, all of the dermatophyte tests have advantages and disadvantages. And when you use them, it's good to know the limitations of them and say, yep, I'm using this and I'm going to interpret the results in light of that disadvantage. So for example, our wood slamp, we know we're only going to pick up microsporin species, microsporin species. So if I have a case that comes in with trichophyton, I am going to miss that with my wood slamp. 
So I use, I still screen with Woodslamp, knowing that microsporum is going to be the more common family, but I always have to keep in the back of my head that those trichophyton cases are going to be show up negative and obviously still be trichophyton. And so if I suspect that I need to submit another test uh, on that patient. And then of course, every dermatologist is going to talk about the importance of cytology. Every patient, even our new patients, our recheck patients, they're always getting cytology because a lot of them are, are going to be allergy patients that are coming in with secondary pyoderma. And the surface cytology is helpful to identify, do we have a bacterial or a yeast pyoderma? And how are we going to treat that pyoderma? As far as the counts that we see on the, the cytology, do we have really heavy counts where I think I need to consider systemic therapy? And that's also taking into account the derm exam, right? How severe, uh, severely affected is the patient? Um, I'm always going to do topical therapy unless the owner is physically unable to do topical therapy, but that's going to be most dermatologists. But we'll kind of combine the derm exam plus the cytologic findings plus owner compliance, right? I can provide or I can design a perfect topical protocol, but if my owner is unable to do it, it's not going to be successful. So you always have to take that into account, but the cytology is very helpful as far as a key piece in designing that protocol. And when we're doing our surface cytology and treating these pyoderma patients, it's going to be really important to recheck these guys because we know that the staph and the yeast are always there as a secondary phenomenon. And so it's a flag to us as a veterinarian saying, hey, something's going on systemically. And in most of our cases, that is going to be an allergy, especially in young dogs. Older dogs, we can factor in endocrinopathy, but younger dogs, that's pretty rare. So we're going to be talking about mainly allergy versus an immunodeficiency, which is also rare. Okay, so minimum database, we're talking flea comb, ruling out parasites, I guess I would say. So flea comb, mites, dermatophytes, doing a cytology to evaluate for yeast and bacteria, and then treating whatever we find on these tests. Yeah. Great summary. You said it way faster than, than I did. Love it. Perfect. I was, I was frantically looking at notes over here going, okay, do I have all the steps here? So I'm so glad that I got them all. Steps one through three, we've got do a good physical exam, derm exam, get a good history. Step one, minimum database. Step two, what's step three? So step three is going to be a part of that recheck. And if the patient is breaking back out, or let's say you clear the pyoderma, but they're still itchy, we need to start talking with that owner about the underlying disease, which is going to be in most cases, like I said, an allergy, unless you suspect something else. And that's where we're going to start with our dietary therapy, because in a young dog and a puppy, and even in older dogs, it's still recommended to start with food allergy first, right? Atopic dermatitis is technically a, a diagnosis of ruling out food allergy. So we're always going to start with food. But since we're specifically talking about the puppy, the puppy more, more prone to having a younger onset for food allergy, we want to start with our, our dietary therapy. And that's where Derm Complete is awesome because up until Derm Complete, we were really limited on our options for growing dogs and, and making sure that they were getting adequate nutrition, especially those really, really giant breed dogs that need all of those extra calories. We want a diet that's formulated for all growth stages or all life stages. And Hills, I think, saw that need and was able to step in and fill it and create Derm Complete Puppy, which is really, really nice. Absolutely. I'm so happy to know that something like Derm Complete exists because thinking of, of starting a food trial on a puppy, if I were to, to look at this puppy, that would be my question is what's going to be labeled for all life stages. And like you mentioned, these large breed dogs can add an extra layer of complication. Is Derm Complete puppy labeled for large breed puppies? 
It is. Yes. So great benefit to this diet. And it also comes, it comes in a dry version, but also a canned version. So if you're having to give pills to patients, you know, we have that canned food option because people are going to want to give it a peanut butter or peanut butter pill pockets, which, peanut butter pill pockets. <laughs> which we now know everyone knows no go. It's not okay for diet trials. And I do usually tell owners, you know, when we're doing the diet trial, it's definitely not fun in a puppy or in any dog, let's be real, but it is only eight weeks. So if they can give me eight weeks, that's not based on my opinion. That's based on the literature. We know that at eight weeks, 90% of, of patients, of canine patients are going to be in complete remission. So if they can give me eight weeks, then after that, if we have a positive response, we can either start working stuff back in or, or kind of go from there. If we don't have a response, then we can start talking about either a second diet trial or maybe getting referral for skin testing and immunotherapy because starting immunotherapy in young dogs also very, very, I'm very proactive on that as well. I love working with the young immune systems, but for that diet trial, it's just eight weeks and Derm Complete thankfully does provide both the canned version and the dry version for us to use. Make things a little bit easier for everybody. So is that step four, is that follow up and see where you're at in eight weeks and either continue on this food or, you know, alter your food trial or add things back in? Correct. Yeah. So we want, always want to make sure to recheck. We don't want to just let them go indefinitely on the food because we want to see, is it helping? Is it not helping? I know we can never force owners to be compliant, but do always say, look, we're going to get you these to get you through these eight weeks, then come on back and we'll see, does Fluffy need to stay on this food? longer term? Do we think we have a food allergy and we want to continue with Derm Complete? And if so, if we're on Derm Complete Puppy, we do need to talk about our transition. And that's kind of tying into the last step of making sure that we're not keeping a two-year-old dog on Derm Complete Puppy because they started it when they were, you know, six months old. We want to set a transition date to transition them to Derm Complete Adult, just so they're not getting all of those extra calories and dealing with obesity and joint disease and all the other stuff that you guys deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. That makes me cringe. <laughs> sure. Yes, definitely on a day-to-day -day basis. Those are conversations that we're having. So I'm glad that that's incorporated as a step to remind all of us like, hey, let's get them off the puppy food at the appropriate time. So just to summarize, step one, good physical, good derm exam, good history. Step two, minimum database and treating whatever we're finding on our workup. Step three would be starting dietary therapy if it becomes appropriate after step two. Step four, follow up on the dietary therapy to see if it's working. And step five would be transition to derm adult, which is, like I said, a good reminder for all of us because it would be easy to say, this is working. We're not going to change anything. Yes, that is correct. And we do have that all typed up. Um, if you guys are interested in that, you can reach out to your local Hills representative and they can get that in your hands or have that as a resource for you at your clinic. So you've kind of alluded to this a little bit throughout our talk. And, and I'd love it if we could just kind of bring it full circle at the end here, you know, talking about dietary therapy in young dogs and a lot of the other things that you've mentioned throughout this talk, it sounds like really being proactive and kind of starting these conversations with our patients when they're young, like you mentioned, the young immune system being easier to work with in some cases. Can you just kind of talk about your philosophy as far as being proactive with your patients to manage dermatology cases? Yeah, I I very much, I think that sums up for it. I am very proactive. I love working with my primary care vets in this area. They all, I work very closely with them and they kind of know this now, but I think it's so much easier to work with a one to two to three-year-old dog 
where we've tried this, we've tried this, but the skin hasn't undergone all of those chronic changes. The immune system is not ingrained and we don't have this huge kind of inflammatory pattern that's been existing for so long within the, the patient. And, and not to say that I don't love seeing my senior patients. I do, but sometimes I, I'll be full honest. I get kind of disheartened when they come in and they're 15 and this has been going on for eight, nine, 10 years. And I'm like, uh, you know, cause the skin is all like kinified. We've got all those crevices that like to harbor different yeast organisms and bacterial organisms. It's very, it's been very much the immune system has been working in that pattern for 10 years now. And here I come trying to undo it and reform it versus working with a one to two year old immune system. And the skin is nice and healthy and pink, and we haven't undergone all those changes. So I do very much advocate for uh, starting workup with owners at a very young age, if they're showing any signs of allergic disease, because it's healthier for the pet. It's, I think a lot easier for the pet parent as well, because some of my owners, they come in and they're very defeated. You know, they've been dealing with this for years and they feel like nothing's going to help. And they're just like, emotionally, financially there, you can just see it. They're expended. And so starting at a young age, I think it's much better to be proactive versus reactive and either starting with the diet and, and getting them in, you know, for diet trials, rechecks, et cetera, or getting them for early referral for immunotherapy. If the dietary therapy isn't working while still considering nutritional support. And just once again, having that proactive mindset. And I, I communicate that to my owners as well, to try and let them know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And I think that helps a lot if they understand, oh, and then you see the light bulb click and they're all on board for it as well. I think that gives us a lot of insight from the GP world of, you know, there's not a magic bullet. We can't, there's not something magical that happens to them when they walk through the door of the dermatology clinic that all of a sudden, you know, there's this magical fix that, you know, we just don't know about in general practice that, you know, if the immune system is working that way for an extended period of time that, you know, all of the advanced care and specialist care in the world can't reverse some of these changes. And so I think it's good communication to us in general practice of the importance of being proactive and not saying, you know, okay, well, you know, this has been going on. I can't take it anymore. Let me go ahead and, and just send to the dermatologist because that, you know, that's difficult for you guys to work with as well. Plus, I would say something to consider that someone mentioned to me and I hadn't really thought about is when we start making those recommendations to refer to a dermatologist or do maybe some of this more advanced treatment, we may not get a yes on the first try. So having those conversations early and kind of introducing that idea might help get our patients in a little bit sooner where everybody can win in this scenario. Yes. I love it. And I know that the owners can be resistant. I've had owners tell me, they're like, they told me like five times to come, but I'm here. And I'm like, good. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, but repetition is key. So I think as long as we, you know, start early and, and can keep saying that and all of that, I know my general practitioners are up against so much each day. So I never fault them or say, look, I know they're, they're doing their best out there, but as proactive as you can be, you know, immunotherapy. I know a lot of uh, my, my GPs aren't trained on it because we just don't have time in vet school, but it is the only treatment option that can either reverse part and, and treat atopic dermatitis. And so without it, we're just kind of band-aiding these patients through. And so having those conversations, I think are so key, but 
also very much for my general practitioners and knowing that it's hard. So just keep doing the best you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a really balanced outlook. Although I have to say, I'm a little bit disappointed that you don't have a secret magic wand that we just, you only get if you pass your derm boards, like, and, and we just can't have it in general practice. That would be much more convenient. I think for all of us, I would share it if I had it, I would, I would <laughs> appreciate <100%. that. laughs> Uh, well, Dr. Ramos, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me. Any final thoughts you want to share with everyone? I am just so thankful to be here and I hope this was overall helpful to you guys. If y'all ever have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out. I have lots of vets who call me all the time. So happy to help you guys with emails, cases, what questions. I had somebody text me a random question today. They were having a debate in their clinic <laughs> and they needed some help <laughs> on solving it. So um, I hope it was overall helpful, but very grateful to be here and hope, hope it helps you guys. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. All right. I know I learned a lot about dietary support for these guys and the additional options out there that maybe I wasn't as familiar with before. So I hope that all of you took away some really great information as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramos, for joining me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you to Hills for making this episode possible. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find us on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. <laughs>